Let's go ahead and move into our message today. Let's get right into things. We are going to continue our series today called Knowing God. This is something that we have been digging into for several weeks now, and we want to continue to do that. In fact, we are really kind of at the tail end of things now. We only have um, three messages left, including today. So we're really at the end of this, but we just want to continue to dig in, continue to dive into to who God is. We We said from the very beginning, our objective here is that we would enter into a real and genuine relationship with God. That's what we want to do. That's what knowing God looks like, to have a real relationship with him. And so we've been trying to unveil more and more of God's character so that we can do just that. We've we've been taking communion each week. We've been having weekly nights of prayer and fasting, just doing everything we can to get to know God. We want to give everything we have to this and, and certainly want to continue to do that well beyond this series. In fact, really my hope and my prayer is that this series really is just a kickstart into a a lifelong relationship between you and God. That is my honest prayer. And so let's continue to dig into this, continue to give ourselves to this. Um, Last week, we kind of took a bit of a turn in this series and we started to talk about what we call God's moral attributes. And what we said is that This begins to show us some really deep, intimate things about God. And actually what we begin to see, which is pretty cool, is is the very motives and intentions um, for why God does what he does, for, for the reasons that he acts the way that he acts. And so this really illuminates his character in these pretty amazing ways. So we've talked about his mercy and, and his grace, these beautiful things that we see about a God on display in Scripture. And we've used um, Romans chapter 11, verse 22, is kind of our roadmap through the moral attributes of God. And, and so this is what the Apostle Paul says here, very simply to the Roman church. He says, I want you to consider the goodness and severity of God. This is what he, he tells the people of God. I want you to consider, I want you to think about, I want you to look at the goodness and the severity of God. Now, maybe each time that we've read this over the last few weeks, you've, you've noticed that word severity, and maybe you've thought to yourself, what exactly is that? What, what exactly are we talking about there? Because we get God's goodness, right? I mean, honestly, we, we sing about it all the time. We talk about it all the time, his love, his grace, his mercy, yes and amen, right? But, but what is that severity piece all about? And this is what we want to begin to unpack today, because this is something that's very essential for us to understand when it comes to the character of God. Now, a couple of things that I want us to understand within the context of what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans chapter 11. And the first thing that we very clearly see within context is that Paul is intentionally um, opposing the ideas of goodness and severity, right? I mean, we clearly see that those are uh, opposing viewpoints, and there's a very specific reason why he's doing that. In fact, this word severity in the original language means to be cut off or to be separated from. I want you to think about that as it relates to God, to be cut off or to be separated from 
from. That's what this word severity means. So as we read this really simple scripture that we might otherwise pass right by, we actually stumble upon a really interesting aspect of who God is, that that there is some some harshness, that there is some severity that we need to be aware of. And I think initially that shocks us a little bit, that catches us off guard, but indeed we do see this very clearly in Scripture. This is something that is absolutely truth. And so let me give you maybe the most vivid, descriptive version of this as we see in Scripture. I want to show you this from the beginning so that you understand we can't deny this aspect of God. So let's go to Nahum chapter 1 starting in verse 2, and think about what this is revealing about God's character. It says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty Unpunished. He continues in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. It's just this really vivid description of this attribute of God that we're talking about. And this is something that we can't deny. This is a reality in Scripture. And in fact, as I've mentioned, this is actually a very prevalent theme. In scripture. We see this very clearly. In fact, it might surprise you, but there are actually more references in scripture to God's wrath and anger than there are to his love. That, that's a bit surprising to us, but there are more references to his wrath than there are to his love. Now, this is again shocking for us, but what I find really interesting about this concept is that this means that While the biblical writers clearly had no hesitations or concerns uh, about boldly speaking on the topic of God's wrath and anger, it, it is very much different today. I mean, this isn't something that we talk very much about. It isn't something that, that we sing about. In fact, if it comes up, we're, we're trying to suppress it, right? We're trying to hide it. We don't want to really see this for what it is. And the primary reason we do that is because we don't rightly understand it. Like, we don't, we don't get this concept. We don't understand how it relates to God. So here's what we do. We say, well, I'm just going to focus on the good aspects of God right? I'm just going to put my attention on his love and his mercy and his grace, and I'm going to go ahead and ignore the things that might make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm just going to to overlook the things that might actually convict me or might actually force me to change some things. I'm just going to ignore those things. That's so often our posture when we look at these things. But if we're going to truly get to know God for who he is, if that is our true objective, then it's time to open the box on what scripture really reveals about who God is. It's time that we really see the truth that is revealed in scripture, and that's what we want to begin to do Today, Let's see what scripture has to say about this topic. Let's see what character traits rise to the surface so that we can understand him better and better and rightly respond to who he is, okay? So here's how we're gonna approach this topic of God's severity. We're gonna look at um, two primary attributes of God that really bring this whole concept to light. I think as we dig in, you'll, you'll really begin to see this concept for what it is. And so we're going to jump right into things. We're going to start in the book of Exodus. 
And so just real quick to kind of set the stage on what we're about to read, within the biblical narrative, as we turn to the book of Exodus, what we see is um, there's a man named Moses who, who God has just used to deliver the Israelites from hundreds and hundreds of years of oppression and bondage. These people have finally been freed from bondage. So they leave Egypt and they come into the wilderness and they're kind of in this in-between stage between Egypt and, and the promised land. And while they're in this stage, God does some pretty amazing things. Now, let me remind you, these are God's people. He, he makes a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Israelites are my people. And so because of this, he's going to now pass down his statutes, his laws to his people, really his expectations for them. But what's really cool is within this, we see his character revealed in some pretty amazing ways. In fact, he really shows himself to his people like he never has before. And I want to show you one example of this in Exodus chapter twenty. Starting in verse 3, this is what he says. He says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We fast forward to Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 12. This is what we read. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars, for you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. So this is the first attribute of God that begins to enlighten us on what his severity is ultimately about. He says that I am a jealous God. Now, what's interesting about this concept is that I think this is the real motive behind his severity. This is really what's going on within him that brings his severity to light. He is a jealous God. In fact, one of these scriptures says that his name is jealous. That's a, a capital J. His name is jealous. Now, this is really important because if you know old school naming rituals, you know what a big deal this is, right? I mean, their, their names were everything. That's who they were. That was their identity. And this is how God chooses to describe himself to his people. I am a jealous God. This is what he wants them to know. So let's talk a little bit about this concept so that we can ensure we rightly understand what it means, okay? And let's just, right out of the gate, let's address the first issue that you and I are gonna have with this concept, okay? Because when we hear something like God is jealous, what you and I are gonna do is we're gonna immediately compare that to us, right? We're going to compare that to our experiences, to, to our perspective. And so immediately we're going to go, well, we know what jealous is, right? I mean, we've, we've seen this, we've experienced this, and it can be really nasty and, and really ugly. So surely this isn't something that would represent God Almighty. But there's a distinction that we have to make, and it's important for you to realize this. There are two very different types of jealousy that we see, okay? Very different. The first is the type that you and I are used to. Okay, it's, it's I want what you have, right? And, and why do you have it and I don't have it? And it leads to anger and resentment and bitterness. It can be this really nasty, even malicious thing that we see rise up within us. But the second type of jealousy is so much different. It's so much different. In fact, this could be best described as protective jealousy. That's, that's what it is. It's being zealous to protect a love relationship. So, so it's not blind rage, it's not misguided anger. What it is is healthy fruit of covenant affection. 
That's what this type of jealousy is ultimately about. In fact, a professor once said this. He said, married people who feel no jealousy at the intrusion of a lover or an adulterer are surely lacking in moral perception for the exclusiveness of marriage is the essence of marriage. In other words, this is what he's saying. If you were a spouse that felt no jealousy toward an emotional intruder, well, you would be lacking love. You would be lacking desire and affection for your partner. So actually, this is a positive virtue in our lives. This is something that we should rightly have as husbands and wives as in any sort of covenant relationship. And this is the type of jealousy that God has for his children. He is jealous for our love. He's jealous for our loyalty. He's jealous for our faithfulness and obedience. He is jealous for these things. And so the immediate question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, does he have these things from us? Does he have our love? Does he have our loyalty? Does he have our obedience? In fact, let me put it this way. If God were, were to look through your day-to-day thoughts and actions, if he were to really keep track of, uh, of where your affection goes and what really captures your attention, would he feel like he's in a healthy, faithful relationship or would his jealousy burn because you ignore him or because you prioritize other things. In fact, if you were being honest about it, would you describe yourself as a loving, faithful partner or would you have to describe yourself as an adulterer that puts other things ahead of him and and loses focus of what this is ultimately really about? What would be the answers to those questions? See, what his jealousy ultimately shows us, this is really amazing, is that, that he wants us to be zealous for him. He wants us to be passionate about getting to know him. This is what he desires from us in our relationship, that we would be zealous to get to know him. In fact, I read this paragraph the other day in my studies that I thought really encapsulated this so beautifully. This is what it said. I want you to really think about this. It said, a zealous man towards God is preeminently a man of one thing. He only sees one thing, he cares for one thing, he lives for one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, for all of this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance his glory. That's what it looks like to be zealous for God. That's what it looks like to be passionate about him. That's what faithfulness to him looks like. And so let me ask this question. Does your life look anything like that? Does your relationship with God look anything like that picture that's being painted? We have to to wrestle with this. And, And listen, I'm not talking about the ups and downs of our relationship with him. It's just like any other relationship. We're gonna go through hills and valleys, but really I'm talking about those of us that frankly are just indifferent towards God. We're just apathetic. It's like we can take him or leave him. It doesn't really matter. And and honestly, I get it. I understand. I know that life is crazy. I know that we feel like our heads are spinning because there's so much going on. But the truth of the matter is, and we're just going to have to settle this in our hearts, there's no excuse for us putting the things of this world and the things of this life ahead of God. There's no excuse for it. You can try to come up with it. They're going to fall short because the truth of the matter is if God is not number one in your life, if there's not a burning passion to grow closer, if there's not a, a hunger to serve him, then you can be sure that his jealousy is burning for you. It's burning for your attention. It's burning for your affection. It's burning for your heart. 
And so the question laid before us is, how are we going to respond to that? How, how are we going to respond to this aspect of God? This is ultimately where his jealousy leads us, okay? Now, with that on the table, with this concept now in mind, we can turn the page to the other attribute of God that we need to understand. And this is a really big one as it comes to his severity. In fact, it's really the most significant one as we see in Scripture. So we need to make sure we understand it. And that is the wrath of God. We read this in, in one of the scriptures that we've already read, but again, this is such a prevalent topic in scripture, so we need to make sure we rightly understand it. And, and just like with God's jealousy, the first hurdle that we're going to have to jump over is when we think about this idea of wrath, again, we immediately relate it to our experiences and, and to the way that, that we think and we feel. So we read the word wrath and, and we think about a loss of self-control, right? We think about an irrational outburst. That's immediately where our minds begin to go. And so then we think to ourselves, well, that's not worthy of God, right? That's, that's not worthy of him. That can't be true. There's no way. He's definitely better than that. And the truth of the matter is he is, okay? This, this isn't how he works. He doesn't lose his temper. He, he doesn't have irrational outbursts that just come out of nowhere. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, scripture says over and over and over again that he is slow to anger, says that, that he is patient for us. It says that he is long-suffering. Like any of our ideas of wrath just fall so short of what we're talking about as it relates to God. So then the question is, well, what is God's wrath? What, what does this mean? What does this represent so that we can understand it and rightly respond to it? So here I think is the best definition of God's wrath. And I think this is going to seem really simple on the surface, but it's really important that we truly understand the depth of it. So here is the best definition. God's wrath means that he simply hates all sin. That's what God's wrath means. He intensely hates all sin. And again, we see this over and over again in scripture. God would respond to sin and disobedience with wrath and anger. He was serious about his commands. He was serious about humility and obedience. And where that didn't happen, we would see his wrath come to light. So let me give you an example of this as we see it in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 17. It says, do not plan evil in your hearts against one another. Don't do that. Do not favor a false oath, for these are all things that I hate, says the Lord. I, I hate these things. He hates sin. Now, there's an important distinction to be made here, and maybe you, you notice this, but within this scripture, it says God hates sin. It does not say that God hates sinners. It doesn't say that. He doesn't say that you planned evil, so I hate you. He says, do not plan evil, because I hate that God hates sin. Now, have you ever wondered to yourself, why does God hate sin? Like, wh why does this separation even exist to begin with? Why does he hate sin? And there are two primary reasons that we see in Scripture as to why he hates sin. And this is really important for us to understand, okay? The first reason that he hates sin is because it dishonors him. It dishonors him as God. It goes against who he is. And so when his creation chooses to participate in it, they are in direct conflict with him. Think about it that way. And considering the fact that God made us in his image, that's obviously not what he desires. He doesn't want us to be in opposition to him. He wants us to be in relationship with him. That's what he wants. And sin interrupts this plan. In fact, we talk about this idea a lot, but let's not forget that our ultimate aim 
And this life is to bring glory to God. That is at the core of things what this whole thing is about. So when we choose sin and disobedience, catch this, we are going directly against the true purpose for why we were created. Think about that. When we choose sin and disobedience, we're going directly against the reason why God created us. It dishonors him. We are here to bring glory. This is the first reason he hates sin, because it dishonors him as God. Now, the second reason is really interesting, and maybe you've never realized this before, but I think it's definitely helpful for our understanding. The second reason that God hates sin is because it hurts his people. He loves his people, and he doesn't want them to be hurt, and sin hurts his people. By the way, this is why God speaks against lying and cheating and adultery, because it hurts his people. It hurts the ones that he loves. Now, what's so interesting about this is I think so many people view God as like this domineering ruler, right? He, he wants to limit us. He wants to, to box us in. Like, let us have a little bit of fun here, God, right? So many people look at him this way, but you have to understand that's the exact opposite of what God wants for us. I mean, scripture could not be more clear. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to live abundantly. He wants us to have joy unspeakable. That's what he wants for us. So he gives us these guidelines so that we stay on the path that leads to those things. That's what's going on. Think about it this way. Maybe this will help you understand it. But do you tell your kids not to touch the stovetop because you're a domineering parent? No, it's because you love them and you don't want to see them hurt, right? Do you tell them not to jump on the bed because you're a jerk? No, it's, it's because you want to protect them, right? And in the same way, God says, turn from sin and follow me. This is the intent behind what's going on to protect his people. So listen to this. This is really important. That means that serving a God who has righteous anger is actually a very good thing. This is a very good thing because what it shows us is that he's serious about protecting his honor and he's serious about protecting his children. That's great news for us. We should be so grateful as a result. Now, here's the problem. And, and we always end up going here because it's us, and so there's always a problem here, okay? And that is, while God has patiently and while God has lovingly warned us about the things we do that dishonor him, right? I mean, he has just patiently come alongside us and tried to lead us down this path of safety and, and prosperity. The truth of the matter is we have all dreadfully messed this thing up. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Every single one of us has desperately fallen short. We have disobeyed him. We've all messed it up and we're all guilty. We're all guilty as a result. And here's the scary reality of what that means for us. I want you to think about this. This is the scary reality. Watch what it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. It says, because of your stubbornness and because of your unrepentant heart, catch this, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. You are storing up wrath for yourselves. All of these mistakes, all of these failures, all of this egregious sin is storing up wrath for God's judgment. Now, I said that's a scary reality. In truth, that's terrifying. I mean, we, we can't even begin to understand just how scary that is, right? I mean, when you survey your life and you think about the ways that you've messed up, you think about the, the straight up disobedience and disrespect to God, I mean, to think that we will be paid back for those, th those things, I can't even begin to understand just what that means. It's terrifying. And if we're being really honest now, this is the real reason we don't want to acknowledge God's wrath. 
This is the real reason we don't want to talk about it or, or look at it because, I mean, a God that knows my every thought and my every action, I don't even want to think about him having wrath and anger, right? Like hard pass. I don't even want to think about that. But the truth still stands firm. He is a God of wrath. He is a, a, a jealous God. He is seeking our attention, and it's time that we acknowledge these things. It's time that we acknowledge who he truly is. It's time to acknowledge what we truly see in Scripture because, listen, here's the key. This is the key to this. When we finally acknowledge these aspects of God, when we finally look and we see his jealousy and his wrath and, and his severity for what they truly are, catch this, that's when we can finally and deeply acknowledge what he's done for us. This, this is what really matters. This is where we really see God for who he is. I want to read for you Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It starts by saying this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In all of that sin, in all of that shame, in all of that humiliation that we're talking about, Christ died for us. Watch what verse 9 goes on to say, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is where we ultimately have to land. We're going to get saved from the wrath of God because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the landing spot. That's the landing spot. Now, I want you to fully grasp this. I want you to really understand this word justified that we just read. We actually sang about it today. This word justified means when you put your faith in Jesus, you are proudly and eternally declared not guilty. You, you are set free. You are pardoned through what Jesus has done for you. So catch this. Listen, within the context of today's message, that means that the wrath that you have stored up for yourself, that means all of the punishment that you deserve because of your sin and your shame will not fall on your shoulders. You will not have to take the punishment for it because Jesus already has. When he went to the cross that day, it says that he bore the full wrath of God on your behalf. He took the weight. He took the punishment on your behalf. This is the moral of today's story. In fact, I want to read to you what I think might be the most vivid and beautiful description of this that we see in Scripture. Like, I want you to put your heart in this. Realize what this means for you and your friends and your family. Watch what it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. It says, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Catch this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is what we're talking about. This is the significance of the cross. Maybe you've thought before, man, we talk about this a lot, right? The cross and the death and, and the resurrection. In fact, every Sunday, it seems like we're talking about it. And you're right. And if we're not, we should be. Because all things lead back to the cross. When you realize what he's done, when you realize that he took the wrath that you deserve, this is everything. All roads lead back to the cross because that's where we were saved. That's where we were delivered. Delivered from what? All of the wrath that we had stored up for ourselves through our sin and through our shame. See, here's the problem. If God's wrath is not acknowledged, if his severity is not understood, there's nothing to be saved from. There's nothing to be, to be spared from. But when we realize what's really going on here, it's an overwhelming reminder of what we've been delivered from. 
We, we think about all the things that we've done. We think about what we should deserve as a result. And then we get to turn and lovingly gaze at the cross and realize the good news of what he's done for us, that he took our shame, that he took our pain, that he took our punishment on the cross. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that everything that you deserve through your sin, everything that you deserve through your mistakes and your failures, you don't have to bear the weight of it because he already has. If this is something that you've never realized before, maybe you have heard it before, but maybe you've never put it in the right context. But I just want to encourage everybody today would you respond to that? He's accomplished it. The work is done. But it's our job to respond. See, Romans 10, 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from the punishment. Saved from the wrath that you deserve. So if you've never done that, man, I encourage you today, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he did what the word says he did. Believe in your heart deep down that God raised him from the dead, that he is alive and you will be saved. Can we close our eyes? Those watching online, wherever you're at, if you could close your eyes with us. Lord, I pray right now that you would speak to your people. I pray right now that you would do the work that only you can of penetrating to the heart, penetrating to the mind, penetrating to the soul. Whether this is the first time we've heard this or whether it's the millionth time that we've heard it, that we would rightly respond, that we would lay our hearts on the line, that we would lay everything that we are at your feet because of what you've done. Surely you took the punishment. Surely you took the pain. We didn't deserve it. We don't earn it, but you freely give. so worthy. You are so great. You have a accomplished-